Now, we all know how it goes. Be a good boy, and you can have some sweeties. Tidy your room up, and you'll get your pocket money. Work hard, and you'll get good grades. And you'll need good grades. Hit your commission target, and you might get a bonus. Jump through these hoops, and Ofsted will say you're outstanding. Do what the consultant tells you, and you'll get on. If you're a good person, you should get a good life. You get what you pay for. Every good boy deserves treats. Now, this is the basic fabric of a lot of people's lives, and it's everywhere, and it's so much a part of our lives and our mental furniture that we don't even recognize it. It's about a sense of justice, of cause and effect, of merit that gets what it deserves. If I do the right thing, I should be rewarded. If I do wrong, well, no reward. Now, anyone here who's a parent, just sit down if your child watches Thomas the Tank Engine and watch a couple of episodes, and I'll tell you, you will see how relentlessly this message is driven home. And Thomas the Tank Engine was written by a vicar. Now, you know, we instinctively think like this when it comes to religion. If I'm good, if I do my best, say my prayers, and I'm a decent person, then God will be fair, and I'll get what I deserve. In the late 1950s and early 60s, my father worked in a bank, the Bank of Ireland, in central Manchester. And in those days, pre-computers, they had an enormous handwritten ledger which, in which they recorded in beautiful copper plate uh, writing the, the credit and debit in the customer's accounts. And my dad says he, he, he found himself thinking, like, my life's a bit like this. There's a ledger. And God is crediting up all the good things I do in one column, and all my sins are in the debit column. And at the end of the day, God will add it all up, and I'll be in credit, and then I'll get my reward. So a lot of people think about God like a bank manager. You don't have to have a personal relationship with him, but you do have to make enough payments to keep in credit. And most religions operate like this. Do your best, do what's good, keep the rules, and you'll be looked after. The Bible, on the other hand, is not really about a religion at all. The Bible is about a ruler. Now, we've been introduced to him already in the book of Exodus. His name is Yahweh, Yahweh. You see there at the bottom of the uh, slide the phrase, know the Lord. And the word Lord is in small capital letters. You'll see that throughout our reading. That, underneath that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means, I am the God who is. And this ruler, this God who is, is someone you can know for yourself. You can actually be in a relationship with him. And Exodus is all about how to know the Lord. And you know, when you get into a close relationship with somebody, you discover that there's much more to them than you first thought. If you end up getting really close to someone and marrying them, you might find that the real them is quite different from who you thought they were at the start. You may find there are some surprises. Any, anyone going to say amen to that? No, Maxim? Just keeping quiet. Now, in the same way, when you get to know the Lord, Yahweh, you discover things about him that are not what you expected at first. He's a lot more complex than your bank manager. Our text today is going to show us a different side to the Lord. 
It will show us that he's not in the business of just giving out instant rewards and punishments. And his rescue plan for humanity is going to run on his timetable, not ours. Now, how can we get to know the Lord? In Exodus, we do it this way, by reading the story together and thinking through the details. By reading and thinking through the story and by pondering the narrative. And as we do that together, we will know the Lord more and more. And we shouldn't assume that there are going to be obvious and easy answers. God invites us to know him. He tells us about himself and we will find him more complex and more wonderful and more satisfying than we ever imagined. Now I've got uh, three points today, but there's one big concept. And let me tell you, this is not what you came to church hoping to hear today. I told my wife this and she gave me a distinctive frown, which I know means you shouldn't be saying this. So here it is. This is my main idea this morning. Your life might get worse, but God is in control. Your life might get worse, but God is in control. If you become a Christian, your life might get worse, but God is in control. Now, that's probably not what you wanted to hear today, but I think it's a fair reflection of what we read in our text. There's a sequence of three things that happen. They all begin with O. Obedience, opposition, and oppression. Obedience, opposition, and oppression. So firstly, obedience. Look at what Moses was told back in chapter 3, verse 16. God said, Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of all the ites. So that's what he's been told. He's been given this promise. And God says to him in verse 18, the elders will listen to you. And then you and the elders, you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God. So there they go. Now in chapter 4, as we heard last week, Moses had a, a big crisis. You know, he, he completely lacked confidence. He wobbled. He questioned. He argued back. He tried to wriggle out of it. But eventually, um, God convinces him, and Moses believes, and God gives him some signs that he can perform. He could change his staff into a snake, and he can put his hand into his cloak and bring it out white and leprous, and put it back and it will be healed, and a third sign as well. So Moses is given these things, and finally he believes, and he calls together the elders, of the, the leaders of the people called the elders, and in verse 29 of chapter 4, they bring them together, and this is a great moment, because here, for the first time in many, many years, these leaders, these elders of this slave nation are seeing glimmers of hope. They can see a light at the end of the tunnel. They're not sure if it's just the front of the oncoming train at this stage, but they can see some hope. And Moses and Aaron tell them everything that God has said, and they perform the signs, the snake and the hand, and the elders believe, and they bow down and worship God. Now, so far, so good. The mission is getting off to a good start. At this rate, Exodus will be wrapped up by the end of chapter 5, and we can move on to Leviticus. Now, chapter 5, verse 1, is epic, as the young people say, and we should not let it just go by. 
chapter 5, verse 1, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh. Now, what do you think this looked like? Did you know that Exodus, the movie, is coming out soon? Directed by Ridley Scott, the director of Gladiator, so it promises to be good. Who's playing Moses? Christian Bale, also known as Batman. Now, Christian Bale is 40. He's younger than me. And the guy who plays Aaron is 43. Now, you can imagine how this is all going to play out, can't you? Christian Bale, Moses. According to the biblical text, Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. Don't think Christian Bale, think Donald Lees. These guys are not bursting in on Pharaoh like Batman and Robin. Where is it? You know, they're old men. Moses may actually need his staff to lean on, hoping that it doesn't change into a snake at the wrong moment. <laughs> Down he goes. And what about Pharaoh? We're not talking about David Cameron, you know. They're not an elected official who went to public school. The Egyptians think that Pharaoh is a god. He has divine status. They think he's an incarnation of a god. And that means that his power is unlimited and his words have the force of a divine utterance. His will is the law. You can't challenge Pharaoh. Remember that this Pharaoh's predecessor had decided to, uh, to have hundreds of baby boys killed, infanticide, because he perceived that they were a threat. And nobody argued about it. Yep, we'll go and kill them. So Moses and Aaron are coming before a, a ruthless, powerful, clever, and manipulative man who is used to exercising power. That's who the two old dudes are up against. And where are the elders? Did you notice that? They were supposed to be there. God said, you and the elders go to Pharaoh. But what happens in chapter 5, verse 1? Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Where are those other leaders? Some guys stepped forward and the rest went home. Now, an ancient Jewish tradition suggests that the elders slipped away one by one. You know, I've got to take my library books back. Oh, I've got to go and wash my hair. But for whatever reason, it appears that only Moses and Aaron go, and there they are, two old guys. And so verse 1 is wonderful. They come boldly, and they announce their message with these words. Now, it's a little bit obscured in our translation. Our translation says, this is what the Lord says. But the old-fashioned translations, and the, the, underneath this is, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is the messenger language, language of a messenger who comes from one king to another. An ambassador comes and says, thus says the Lord. These are not their own ideas. They're not coming with a suggestion that was drawn up by a committee. They are coming and saying, thus says the Lord. Now, they must have had a strong belief to do this. They're obeying God. Obedience is great. God has appeared to them in the burning bush. They're convinced, and he's promised that Pharaoh will let them go. So now, everything should go great, shouldn't it? It should go swimmingly. I mean, if God makes a promise, he's going to rescue you, and you obey, then QED, everything's going to work out great for you, isn't it? Well, remember what we're learning today. Your life might get worse, but God is in control. So we move quickly from obedience to opposition. How does Pharaoh respond? Verse 2, who is Yahweh? 
that I should obey him. Now, this is not about factual recognition. This is contempt. Pharaoh, as all Egyptians did, recognized lots of different gods. He could have acknowledged this new one, the god of the slave people, the Hebrews, and he could have paid them a bit of respect, but he's having none of it. I don't know here means I don't recognize his authority. See, Pharaoh regards himself as superior to Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, who is, after all, the god of a slave nation. So he treats the request with a sneer of cold command. Now, this is not quite the way that, that Moses and Aaron thought it was going to play out. So they try again with a bit more detail. Verse 3, Pharaoh, read my lips. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, plagues and sword is conventional language for judgment. They're saying, look, all of us could get judged if we don't do this because we've been told by God himself. But Pharaoh is hardly quaking in his boots, is he? He thinks he's seen through it. He knows he's, he's seen union officials before. He knows about this bargaining language. He doesn't want to lose his workforce and give them a bank holiday, much less a long weekend out in the wilderness. So he dismisses them and says, what are you talking about? Why, why are you taking the people away from their, their jobs? Get back to work. Now, by doing this, Pharaoh is actually setting himself up on a collision course with the living God. And ironically, Pharaoh's the one who's asked the right question. Who is Yahweh? And the rest of the book is an answer to that question. Who is the Lord? The answer is that he's the true and living God. He's the one everyone should serve. And Pharaoh is setting himself up as the alternative God, the alternative king, insisting that they serve him. And in verse 10, he uses the exact same language. Verse 10 says this. Uh, turn over the page. The slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I won't give you any more straw. It's a direct challenge. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Who is God? Whose claim will win? Now, how do you think Moses and Aaron were feeling at this point? This wasn't supposed to happen. How can this be part of the plan? We were just doing what the Lord said. Where was he? Why didn't he show up? Have you ever felt like that? Where is God when I need him most? Why doesn't God save me out of this situation now? I can't bear it. Does God keep his promises? Does he really love me? He says he cares. Why am I hurting? And soon the whole Israelite population is going to be asking those questions because we move from simple opposition to active oppression. Oppression. On April 17, 1975, a far-left group called the Khmer Rouge seized control of Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia. Within days, the whole population of the city, reckoned to be possibly three million people, was marched out into the countryside at gunpoint. And it was the beginning of four years of terror as the Khmer Rouge turned Cambodia into a vast concentration camp. They declared that it was year zero. They started the calendar again. They abolished the currency, and they directed a ruthless program to purify Cambodia from capitalism, 
from religion and from all Western influences. Their vision was of an isolated, totally self-sufficient state. Resistance was futile, foreigners were kicked out, embassies closed, the currency abolished. Schools, newspapers, private property were outlawed. Members of the government, public servants, police, military, teachers, religious leaders and middle class people were identified and executed. The towns and the cities were emptied. Everybody was driven out to these paddy fields to grow rice on agricultural collectives known as the killing fields. Families were torn apart. Children were encouraged to spy on adults. An estimated one and a half million Cambodians were worked or starved to death in a four-year period. This book was written by a woman who survived. Her name was uh, Var Hong. She married a, a, a Brit, so her name, is, as the author, is Var Hong Ash. She wrote uh, about the, the work in the paddy fields. As the work intensified, and we all needed all the energy we could get, the food ration was reduced to one condensed milk tin of rice per person per day, plus one spoonful of salt per family per day. It seemed scarcely enough to fill the gnawing hunger in our bellies. Every day, during the lunch hour, people swarmed out into the paddy fields to catch small fish, crabs, snails, frogs. In fact, anything which moved was much sought after to supplement our meager diet of rice and salt. Within four years, a quarter of the population had died. Now that is oppression. And Exodus chapter 5 is a picture of ruthless oppression. And it shows the misery in the depths of Israel's situation. What is it like to be oppressed? This chapter spells it out very simply. There's a sense of utter helplessness. You've got nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide. There's no way of escape. The machine is highly organized, and you're just a tiny little cog. Pharaoh perceives a threat, so he decides to wear out the Israelites and break their spirit, keep them so busy that they have no time for complaining or getting together and organizing revolt. And the, 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 the clever thing he does, which is a masterstroke, is to demand that they find their own straw. Now, in Br English... British English, we have an expression, uh, making bricks without straw. That's not actually what happens here. They still have to find straw because in the construction of the day, mud would be put into a mold with straw and baked in the sun, and the straw would act as a binding agent and would strengthen and give a bit of elasticity to the brick. So they need straw to do their work, but he says, don't give them any more straw. They'll have to find it for themselves. So they scatter across the whole country trying to find straw but they've got to make the same number of bricks. See what he's doing? Squeezing, tightening the screw, squeezing, squeezing them down. And he also uses spin and propaganda. He gives them a new label, lazy. It's not my fault, it's your fault. You're not keeping up with the work. He's trying to mess with their heads. You're not actually oppressed, you're idle. Not just that, he takes a kind of divide and conquer approach. In verse 14, he gets his Egyptian slave drivers to beat the Israelite foremen. Beat the foremen instead of the workers. That will mess, mess them up. What's that going to do for community relations? And the message that's being driven home relentlessly here is, don't mess with the system. Don't bite the hand that feeds. We were better off before Moses came along. You see what he's doing? 
And incredibly, Pharaoh even manages to get them to believe that they were better off under him and that their well-being depends on him. He creates total dependence on the system, as totalitarian regimes have done ever since. And if they do feel badly treated, where are they going to point the finger? Whose fault is it? Moses and Aaron. Life was so much better before they came along. You can see how effective this is in verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You see what's happened? Pharaoh's very shrewd. He's managed to turn the overseers against Moses and Aaron. Now, these foremen are not a bunch of sensitive poets and therapists and musicians, like a lot of the guys here at Grace Church. (laughs) These are men who work in construction. These are men who work outdoors all day managing gangs of men. They work with their hands. They've got tattoos. They smoke roll-ups. They've got big guns. They have to work for a tyrant, and they're not happy. Verse 20 is understated. They found Moses and Aaron. They laid into them. What have you done to us? And that's what oppression does. The community is divided. The people are dispirited. And the new leaders are discredited. Brilliant. Now, just step back from it for, for a minute. Who started all of this? It was God. It was the Lord. It was his initiative. He promised salvation. He promised a rescue. He promised a new land. And what has happened? Your life just got worse. Now, this is a lesson that we need to learn, I think, about trusting God and following the Lord Jesus. Jesus promises rescue, but for a while, your life might get worse. We shouldn't be surprised or resentful if it does. This is part of the territory. God's people will face the same challenges as everybody else. You know, worrying about money, depression, injustice, getting sick, worrying about kids, all of that stuff. But God's people have a load of other problems, especially for you. The struggle with temptation, the struggle with sin, the fight against the devil, possibly persecution. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean your problems go away. Some of them might, but you actually might get a whole bunch of new problems. I think we need to hear this, because we all tend to default back to the idea of merit. Oh, Lord, why is this happening to me? I've been such a good Christian. I've served so hard in the church. I was on the rota twice a month, and I had some people back for lunch, you know? I've been so good. Why is my life going wrong? Well, the first lesson in Israel's redemption is your life might get worse, but God is in control. And any gospel, any message that promises health, wealth, and trouble-free existence here and now is a lie. A pastor wrote to me recently and said, we have a girl coming to the church who was sent into the sex trade at age 12 by her family. She has left the trade once before when she got involved with the church, but in her own words, she thought it would all work out and she would be prospering. But tough times hit, and she didn't understand the gospel. Now she's saying she wants to know the real Jesus. will agree to some in-depth discipleship. 
She wants to leave the trade for good and hasn't worked for two weeks. Can we help with accommodation? Now, life is not going to be easy for that young woman if she follows Jesus. In some ways, her life might get worse for a while. But she will need to know that God is in control. So what do you do? Where do you go when things get worse? There's actually only one place to go. There's only one person to go to. It's God himself. Look at what Moses does in chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses takes the hard questions and he goes to God and reverently he asks them. He takes his pain to God. He doesn't hide his head in the sand. He doesn't sulk and throw his toys out of the pram. He doesn't sentimentalize it with God talk. He doesn't deny the faith and walk away. He goes to God with the questions. He takes his pain. He probably takes his tears. He takes his anguish and he bangs on heaven's door. He takes his pain to Yahweh. Why, O oh Lord, I don't get it. And notice something else here. God is not angry with this. God doesn't say, how dare you question me? God responds to him. He speaks to him. He says, chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will, see, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now, God doesn't respond here with anything new. It's not like he's resorting to plan B. The plan hasn't changed. It's a restatement of the earlier promise. The promise still stands. Yes, your life just got worse for a while, but God is not surprised by it. He's still concerned, and he still will rescue the Israelites. But somehow, and this is the really tricky bit, somehow their suffering is part of the rescue plan. Somehow their suffering is part of the plan. He will rescue them, but he'll do it on his timetable, not on theirs. Now, I know it's not what you would do, or me, but dare I suggest that this decision is a bit above our pay grade. His ways are not our ways. He is God. Romans chapter 11, after a long reflection on the nature of what God is doing in the world and some mysterious stuff, the Apostle Paul bursts out with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And what does this mean for Israel? Where does the plan end up? It ends with full freedom. It ends with the destruction of Pharaoh and his military machine. No more to oppress them. It ends with them coming out of Egypt, not just with uh, you know, a backpack and a Swiss army knife, but laden down with gold, silver, and precious things that the Egyptians give them. They're so keen to get them out. And actually, it's back payment. It's a refund for all those years of service. The Egyptians have been changed. They give them gold and silver, and, and they, they come out with, with treasure. Also, a mixed group called the mixed multitude come out with them. So the Hebrews go out, but there are other Egyptians who want to come on board 
because they've seen how great God is. And we also get a lesson to the whole world, a lesson that we're still hearing now 3,000 years later. Yahweh is king, not Pharaoh. So the delay, which brought so much suffering, also brought good to Israel, and it brought glory to God. Now, friends, this is what we've got to do when things go wrong. Take your turmoil and pain to God and wrestle it out with him. Then stand back and see where it might work out for your good and for his glory long term. Yes, your life might get worse for a while, but God is in control and he will bring about salvation in his good time for your good and for his glory. And the guarantee that we have of this is not actually Moses and the Israelites as great and informative as the story is, we actually have something better. We have someone better. Because like the Israelites, we have a messenger from God. Like Moses, he was chosen for this very purpose. Like Moses, he saw God on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Like Moses, he was assured of God's presence throughout his ordeal and God strengthened him. He proved his calling to the leaders and the people of Israel and they turned against him. And he too was brought before a godless king, treated with contempt, and in this case, sentenced to death on a cross. His name is Jesus. And it looked as if that messenger was going to see his entire mission go up in smoke. Things got a lot worse for Jesus Christ. Yet God was in control. And this Jesus is our Moses. He leads us out of slavery in his own time. We're not beamed up instantly to a better world the minute we pray a prayer. We're called to struggle through in this one, trusting in his promises. Why the delay? Well, partly it's above my pay grade to even answer that. But I do know it's for our good. And I do know it's for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we sometimes shocked and taken back by your word. It uh, doesn't just promise us pie in the sky when we die but it deals with real-world situations and real oppression and real misery. And it does promise a change, but we know it doesn't always come immediately. And we ask, Father, that you would remind us in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the ultimate solution to all of that misery and oppression, and that he's come to rescue us from our own sin and slavery. And help us, too, to think through how we might be agents how we might be ministers of the gospel in this area and further afield to those who are lost and without hope, to those who are enslaved and trapped, to those who are in darkness and need to see the light. We ask it for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.